Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Miss the show, no worries, on point and on this podcast. Did China interfere with our election? Well, yeah, of course, but we already knew the threat. We knew in theory that they wanted to do this, and now we seem to have proof of this aggressive intimidation campaign they used to target conservative ridings to help make sure conservatives wouldn't win. I don't know if this changed the results, but the fact that China does this and thinks they can get away with this, it makes us a very big loser. So we'll talk to the person behind the investigation. We'll also talk about the historic passage of this conversion therapy bill that uh, was really turned into a political weapon by the liberals and then became a stinking albatross for Aaron O'Toole to deal with. And so he took the issue and pulled it out from under Justin Trudeau's feet and pushed it through in a motion. So we're going to talk about the politics of this and some of the misinformation that has clouded the issue. And lost in all the chaos of COVID, the Ford government made a major announcement today that includes this plan to deliver clean nuclear energy at a much, much cheaper rate. This is the first major investment into nuclear energy in decades. It's a significant announcement, and it might very well be a very, um, you know, quick and easy tool to get us where we need to go as far as climate change. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. It's a, it's a very dynamic situation, uh, uh, but we will see more cases. We uh, potentially could see outbreaks, uh, but we're on it. Um, uh, and we've built the lab capacity to respond to this uh, and certainly have public health uh, capacity to manage the outbreaks. A lot of unknowns, but guaranteed, oh, confusion and chaos as we head into the holidays. Alex Pearson with you on this very confusing Thursday, December 2nd. Great to have you here. And boy, like, uh, it has been a day of news. It has been a day of news. And uh, that's because the information around all the rules with this new Omicron uh, variant just changes. It changes literally by the minute. And I sit and I look at my comparator all day long. And I just kind of feel like uh, running away from it because it's it's like I don't know where to start because it never stops. So I get some kind of, you know, piece of information. Then I look back and I'm like, what? It just it's so it's very it's very tough because it's just rolling all the time. And so there have been a lot of fast moving changes in the last couple of hours. Certainly you've heard by now the big development for us in Ontario is uh, those 15 over can get a booster starting December 13th, if you choose. Uh, the U.S. is vaccinating 18-year-olds and up. But um, Dr. Moore said, no, we're not going to do that yet. Because, well, I mean, let's be honest, it would be, an, it would be a gong show. It would be a gong show. So they're going to do those 70, uh, really pushing for those 70 and over for sure. And those, those are who are most vulnerable. But once upon a time, remember the soundbite, vaccines are our way out of this. And, and I, I must have missed the fine print of the talking boy because then they didn't say the part where it's like, sadly, you'll just have to take them every five weeks forever for the rest of your life. But I digress. I don't get the sense that uh, Dr. Moore really is panicking, which is nice to see. Um, it's just sadly it's not stopping those in charge from basically creating a poop show. 
you know, giving us, a lot, I think, a lot of needless chaos. So we got the, the news on the vaccines. We just didn't get any more clarity provincially as far as restrictions. I wish someone had asked about that. You know, we're, we're not really being told how much more annoying is life going to get, which is where I'd really like them to say, your life, your life is going to get this annoying. And I'd be like, okay, cool. I get my expectations. And especially, like, what can we do? What can't we do? Can we travel? Can we not travel? Because that's changing by the hour. And, and there are literally different rules depending on what country we're talking about, what country you're going to. And I suspect the travel rules you're hearing about today are probably going to change 50 more times by the time we hit travel time, all because of this variant. And, you know, we still don't know much about this variant. We still don't know how serious it is. It doesn't, you know, we don't know the threat level, albeit right now it seems to be mild cases. And so I think a lot of people say, like, do all these changes have to be made? Are we overreacting? And certainly no doubt those in charge want to protect their political interests from the fallout of, you know, mucking things up again. And that's why President Biden comes out and does these press conferences he really shouldn't be doing. I don't think I need the president to come out with a five-point strategy, but he rambled on and on and on today. Oh, but he's trying to save his political hide. I mean, his approval ratings are in the you know toilet. He's the guy that promised all Americans will be vaccinated by July 4th. That did not happen. This will be behind us in the rearview mirror by the July 4th weekend. Yeah, no, not happening. And I suspect uh, that is a big reason why we're seeing kind of a lot of this chaos and the uh, extra restrictions every five minutes. And I wish they had just done this two years ago. And I'm like, why, why couldn't you have been this serious two years ago? Remember at this time, like, Trudeau was traveling around Africa, shaking hands, trying to get a UN security seat. He didn't have time to worry about a pandemic. So bottom line is, is this a... You know, warranted? Is it kabuki theater? Either which way, I think we're headed for a gong show, especially if you've got plans to go away from the holiday. And I don't know if a holiday is worth the chaos, because what President Biden announced today made it a lot more expensive and much, much harder to go if you want to go to, let's say, Florida, says Beth Potter of Travel Tourism. Travel just got more complex again. So they haven't closed the borders. They haven't restricted travel. You know, they haven't said only essential travelers. They've given us the opportunity to continue to travel for business purposes, leisure purposes. But what they've said is there's an awful lot more planning that you're going to need to do before you make that trip. Where and when you need to be tested. You're going to need to have a plan in case you test positive, And you're going to have to demonstrate what that plan says. And then you're going to have to do a somersault and a cartwheel, the splits. You're going to have to then do an obstacle course. You're going to have to live on an island for 30 days. And if you like, it's, it's never going to end. So bottom line is, for now, um, like if you're going to the United States, you've got to get this negative test 24 hours before you leave. So the day before, it was 72 hours. And so no question, this is going to create massive backlogs to get these tests because people are already reporting um, they can't get an antigen test to travel. So imagine what this starts to look like as we head to the busiest travel days of the year, right? I mean, you can go the private route for 350 bucks a point, but those, you know, those appointments are going to disappear fast. And if you're like a family of four and on a, like if saved up for your holiday, that, that is crazy expensive. And it's only one way. And um, 
there's no info on the border crossings by land going into the U.S. I mean, right now you don't need a test, but the White House didn't give any clarity. Like, is that changing? So I guess you're going to have to just figure that one out on your own. But uh, I think what is clear is that uh, everything's unclear, right? And then if you want to come back into Canada, and I don't know who came up with this in the Trudeau government, apparently U.S. travelers get an exemption from all these rules, but everyone else, including us Canadian plebes, yes, we have to get a negative PCR test once we get on uh, land, and then we have to isolate. So Americans get a pass, and we don't? Uh, I think that needs to be changed. Who made that policy? But two years of this clown show, and, um, you know, we're going to be turned into pretzels before we get clarity on these rules, because uh, this thing's not stopping to spread. And it's all being driven by what we're seeing in South Africa. And if you look at the cases there, yeah, it's enough to freak you out. I mean, they got 11,000 cases today. They only had 4,500 yesterday, albeit that that was a lot yesterday. Um, But what we know about the variant is it spreads quickly, but so far the cases seem mild, which I think is is a good thing. Again, and if you're going, you know, to a place like South Africa, where, by the way, right now there are hundreds of Canadians stuck there. And, and of course, they're stuck there because the Trudeau government issued a travel ban and didn't warn anybody. It's like, oh, hey, by the way, you can't get back in. It's like, what? Huh? I, I didn't know that. And uh, so people have been scrambling trying to get back here. There is no direct flight to South Africa. So you either have to go to Germany or, like, the U.K., and then you have to board another flight. And what the Canadian government's forcing people to do is Canadians have to get a PCR test in South Africa, and then they have to get another PCR test at their stopover. And the problem is very few airports in Europe have these tests, and they cost 500 bucks a pop. And so those trying to get out, like Melanie, say it's an absolute nightmare. All I can say is I'm living in an, an absolute nightmare. So I had planned to come for just under two weeks. I had a flight booked last Monday through Amsterdam. I've done that trip many, many times, so I wasn't expecting any issues. And we all woke up on last Friday morning to hear about the travel ban, no warning. And we've all been scrambling to find flights, which have been uh, almost impossible. So that's Melanie Blotch, who um, was visiting her 93-year-old mom. And, and because my husband's South African, I'm like, hey, you know anyone over in South Africa who's stuck? And he's like, yeah, here, here's the list. So, um, you know, she ends up being a friend of the family. But, yeah, she's stuck there. She wants to see her 93-year-old mother. And then all of a sudden, like, she's stuck in the country. And she got a flight for Monday. But now she learned today, like, just, you know, uh, before I was talking with her, she learned that you can find the test, but there's no guarantee now you're going to get on a plane. So there were 20 Canadians who finally found a PCR test, and then they got kicked off the flight. Where is the Trudeau government? Nowhere. These people cannot get any information from global affairs. They can't get any information or help. Their local MPs aren't answering the phone. You cannot shut the borders and then leave Canadians stranded with no guidance or help, anything. That's crazy. I mean, the least you can do, if you can't, if you can't warn the people, is help them get back. So if you're going to travel, that is also something you're going to have to um, keep in mind, is that if I go on holidays, am I even going to be able to get back? Because there'll be way more of these cases, and everyone's freaking out already. And What, there's like nine cases now? So I don't know. Does that sound relaxing? I don't know. I mean, maybe the best route is just to come over at Roxham. There, we sold it. Cross over at Roxham, all right, folks? I'm kidding. 
So did China interfere with our recent election? Short answer? Mm-hmm. Yep. They did. And it's not like we did not see it coming. Back in uh, July, you may recall, CISA sent out warnings that countries, including China, were looking for ways to exploit and undermine our democracy through misinformation campaigns and threats and interference. And now there seems to be this undeniable proof that China did, in fact, interfere. Disinfo Watch, which has also been watching this threat, uh, threat has now pieced together China's operation, finding that Chinese Canadians and the Conservative Party were targeted in a deliberate intimidation and misinformation campaign running through private chat platforms um, like Beijing's state-owned controlled platform WeChat. I mean, China obviously didn't want the Conservatives to win because Aaron O'Toole's made clear that a Conservative government would be much tougher on China. And so the best way to hurt the Conservatives was to go after, you know, the Chinese-Canadian candidates, which would include a Vancouver MP who lost what should have been a safe seat. Is this the reason that the conservatives lost? I mean, we just don't know. But that China is doing this at all and that they may get away with it, I mean, the threat is met with a shrug makes us, I think, all a big loser. Marcus Koga, senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute, is the founder of Disinfo Watch. He's also an expert on all things Russia, Eastern Europe, and Asia. So you've done the work and now we've got the results. Good to have you, Marcus. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Yeah, um, we've spent the past couple of months poring over data, uh, you know, stuff that we found on social media, Chinese state media, and uh, a lot of content that's actually been sent in by um, Chinese community civil society and pro-democracy activists. And, mm-hmm. um, and the conclusion is, there, there are two conclusions here. One is that uh, China did indeed use uh, state media platforms. This was, you know, everyone saw this. This was early September, uh, September 9th. When Chinese state media uh, published uh, a story attacking the conservatives, uh, mm-hmm. attacking Aaron O'Toole, um, and promising retaliation in the form of a counterstrike against Canada if uh, Canadians were to elect a conservative government. Uh, at that point, the conservatives were actually leading in the polls, um, and so it's it's likely that that was that story and uh, various others that sounded like it were, were published um, because of that as a reaction to the, the polls at the time. Um, and you mentioned this uh, sort of low-level private chat room uh, disinformation and influence operation that was happening. That's, the, it's, that's a bit more complicated. There's no specific Chinese government smoking gun on this that we found, but it, the tactics of spreading disinformation, targeting, there's a, a candidate, as you mentioned, in Vancouver, Kenny Chu, um, who had uh, uh, issued or, or had uh, tabled a private member's bill that would have introduced a foreign agents registry. This means a, a registry whereby um, people benefiting from advancing the interests or advocating for foreign governments that are listed in this legislation, um, that they would need to register with the government. And there would clearly be um, consequences for not doing so if you found out that a person was getting paid to advance the interests of, say, the Russians, Chinese, Iranians, or someone like that. Um, this uh, legislation was mischaracterized intentionally in the Chinese-speaking uh, community as being one that was targeting specifically uh, Chinese Canadians, uh, trying to censor them, um, and trying to marginalize them in our, in our national debate. It did nothing of the sort. But this information, this disinformation uh, regarding Kenshu spread far and wide. There were uh, popular Chinese-Canadian platforms north of Toronto uh, that, were, that were publishing them in Vancouver. Um, you know, we don't know what the ultimate impact 
of those that disinformation campaign and influence campaign was. But it does seem that uh, because of the timing, because of the narratives uh, that were being used, there is clear signs of, of coordination. We do believe, in fact, that that uh, that campaign was coordinated to um, to attack that specific candidate in the in the Conservative Party uh, more broadly. Um, and the last thing I want to say is that it may not, you know, election outcomes may not have actually been the target here. It may have been that the Chinese government and its allies here in Canada were trying to send a warning to the Conservatives and all other political parties to keep away from Chinese issues, to stop criticizing them, because there could potentially be a, an election outcome if uh, if they said something that the Chinese government uh, disagreed with. So in any case, whether there was an impact on the election outcome or not, there was an, a definite impact on our democracy, our democratic processes, and, um, and quite frankly, the, the public debate in this country. So, uh, you know, it's right. pretty serious stuff, and uh, the government uh, should be uh, looking into this and perhaps launching an official investigation. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, we talk on a day where fo- Facebook has uh, now removed more than 500 accounts linked to this online disinformation network based yeah. in China. So there's there's more than just smoke here, obviously. I mean, it's pretty obvious. And, and I don't think at this point, you know, uh, we've gone well past the point of just kind of taking note of this stuff. Um, you know, there was the Halifax Security Forum just two weeks ago, where I think the the message was, we can't just talk about this anymore. We have to do it something. And so do you get the sense that this government is finally taking it seriously? Because this is not a partisan issue, uh, whether it changed the election or not. The fact that China and Russia and other countries are even meddling and have access to do this kind of damage is something we all need to get behind and stop. You're, you're absolutely right. This isn't a partisan issue. Um, what these regimes, you know, specifically the Russians, are really good at doing this, is simply yeah. sowing chaos. They want to polarize yeah. us. They want to see our country divided. So when they see an and they've done that with chaos, vaccines. So a lot of the disinformation and chaos we've got with vaccines is is thanks to Russia. You got it exactly. They yeah. have been publishing and, uh, and amplifying these narratives, and they're being used by the extreme anti-vax and anti-lockdown groups that we're seeing. Um, you know, they do this it's, regardless of whether it's an issue of the of the left or right. They will take either as long as it it has the potential to divide Canadians, Americans, Europeans, NATO allies. They will do that. They will push it and and advance it so that it tears us apart. And the, right. the, the thing that the Canadian government needs to understand, you know, I recently spoke in a, in a conference about this. Um, we need to move beyond the perception of this threat as being one that just targets our elections. The, Moscow and Beijing are not yeah. twiddling their thumbs waiting for an election to come around. They are working mm-hmm. on this 24-7 to undermine and subvert our democracy. You know, elections may be a, a handy time because we start debating these issues. But a, but a government like the one in Russia, Vladimir Putin, uh, knows that we're going to be keeping an eye on elections. They're, we're going to be looking out and going to be very hawkish in insofar as, um, as trying to detect any sort of Russian activity. So he doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't focus yeah. on elections. He, fo- he has people working full time sure. on this issue. And we need to uh, start acknowledging the fact and responding to this threat as a 24-7 threat to our democracy and our international security.
Yeah, and not to mention, um, you know, we've got to start being naive, you know, stop being so naive and, and fueling their propaganda, as many, many do. Um, I don't have a lot of time left, Marcus, but I do want to ask you about this because I saw this headline. Uh, a criminal complaint has now been filed um, in the Netherlands, uh, or in, yeah, I think that's in the Netherlands, um, against Nike, Patagonia, and some large, you know, big brand names accused now criminally of profiting from the alleged use of forced labor in the Chinese region of Xinjiang, which is where the uh, Uyghur Muslims are. Um, this is pretty serious. It's the third uh, time this kind of charge has been brought forward. But it's, um, you know, this is a big brand's big name identity. And, you know, it, it, again, puts more emphasis and proof that China is not a friend. They are not nice. And uh, we've got to start getting serious. But can you talk to the charge? Well, look, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute already last year, they published a list of 82 foreign companies that are actually benefiting from the use of slave labor in China. And this is specifically Uyghur slave labor. And you're right, there are big names here. I'm just looking at the list right now. Adidas, Nike, Apple, Mm -hmm. BMW, Bombardier. The list goes on. The fact that um, there are three European countries now who are taking, who have legislation and are taking um, the the possibility that these products are coming to their countries and that um, those companies are are profiting off slave labor is uh, is a really good sign that um, the West is taking this seriously. It would be even better if those countries banded together with other countries, um, you know, Canada included, to work together to ensure that you know. And, and if that were to happen, I think that these these companies themselves would voluntarily stop. Uh, working uh, and with uh, with slave labor and probably pull these sort of factories out, out of out of China. So I don't. It's a. I think it's a positive, very positive uh, turn of events. Uh, I hope more countries, uh, um, you know, uh, open up similar sort of uh, lawsuits, um, but also you know enforce existing laws that we have in place, like like in Canada, where we cannot allow. Um, products uh, coming from slave labor being produced by slave labor just come to market in this country. Interesting times, no question about it. Glad people are starting to finally wake up. Appreciate your time, Marcus. Anytime, Alex. That is Marcus Kolga, who's pretty regular on this show, and he is with Disinfo Watch. So they are the ones watching for us. Thank goodness. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. All those opposed to the motion will please say nay. There being no dissenting voice, I declare the motion carried. Well, it is not very often uh, that you hear that kind of camaraderie in today's politics, but that was the reaction of the swift passage of a conversion therapy bill that is very political or became very political on both sides. You know, for the liberals, it became a wedge issue. 
to use against Aaron O'Toole. And for Aaron O'Toole, it became a stinging albatross around his neck. Because while most conservatives did support the legislation, there were members of the party that opposed it, keeping the issue in the headlines. And just for background, earlier this week, the Trudeau government reintroduced a third bill banning conversion therapy, but it was wider reaching than previous versions and would ban the practice entirely for both children and adults. But it left open the possibility that an adult could consent to conversion therapy. So instead of all of this becoming a big political distraction, O'Toole surprised everyone and introduced a motion to fast track this bill. And in the motion, they closed the loophole, now making it illegal for everyone. So what does this signal? A couple of things. It takes this very contentious and distracting debate off the table. It takes a political weapon off the table for the Liberals and allows Mr. O'Toole to change the narrative for his party. But no question about it, there's a lot of political play going on here and there is disinformation that clouds the issue. Justin Ling is a freelance investigative journalist who happens to have been following this issue extremely closely. So uh, I'm leaning on you to, you know, get through all of the gray matter. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alex. So politics aside, I mean, you, you cover Ottawa. It's not often where you get uh, MPs hugging and dancing in the House from opposite sides. What was your reaction to no. that? No, I mean, it, it was quite a nice moment. I mean, you, you know, listen, there's not a lot of uh, daylight between at least the party leaders on this issue. Um, you know, Aaron O'Toole has, from pretty much the beginning of this conversation, said he opposes conversion therapy and he supports a ban on it. Um, he has in the past expressed some reservations about the way in which it was done. But generally speaking, he's been a champion for for at least the the concept behind this bill and members of his caucus, like Michelle Rempel, um, like Eric Duncan, um, have been voting locally in favor of it and have, I think, been working behind the scenes to make sure it gets passed. So the fact that they sort of took the mantle up themselves and actually introduced Reduced the motion for unanimous consent to have it move forward, I think is an indication that you know, not just that they wanted the political issue gone, but that they actually believe in this. And it, it was definitely a nice moment to see, um, you know, them take take action and actually, you know, be kind of productive and 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 proactive on, a, on an issue that that seriously impacts a lot of people. Yeah, and and there has been controversy whether it's true or not about who this bill would criminalize. So, what is the uh, the fact and the fiction of the law? I mean, I'll give you an example. A lot of people would say, well, you know, if a teacher now talks to a child or anybody, they could be charged, uh, you know, as as you know, converting someone. So, what is the what is the black and white of this? Where is the uh, truth on this? Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, the first thing to understand is that, you know, there, there was, and to some degree still is a conversion therapy industry, you know, it was particularly in the U S but also in Canada, there were camps, there were counselors, there were um, entire practices devoted to trying to rid people of their um, homosexual desires or of their, of their gender dysphoria or the gender expression, um, you know, in an attempt to convince them to be heterosexual or to be cisgender. And of course we know that that doesn't work. And as actually a very, very harmful practice. The Canadian Psychiatric Association, a whole bunch of others, have warned against this practice. They say it's incredibly dangerous. Survivors of this practice say they've experienced intense psychological uh, harm from this sort of, this sort of you know, quote-unquote therapy. And it's not a therapy. It is a quack science mm. at best. Um, and there have been reports of you know, like low self-esteem, depression, suicidal thoughts. And there have been cases where, where people, particularly youth, have committed suicide after going through this. I would liken it more to a cult than to a therapy. 
So keeping in mind that there's an actual industry at play here, you know, the intent is try to, to shut that industry down. Now, the way in which they've gone about it is, is basically to say that putting anyone in conversion therapy is going to be a crime, as is advertising for it. In the original version of the bill, they had a carve out for adults who consented to conversion therapy. But what they heard from a ton of people is basically, you can't consent to this. You can't consent to a manipulative, um, you know, non-scientific, um, you know, uh, often sort of moralizing uh, you know, practice that can still inflict serious harm. So this new bill just, just basically criminalizes the practice altogether. But what it does is very clearly underscore that conversations and that sort of helpful mm-hmm. counseling and that even religious-based uh, uh, conversations are not captured by this bill. The only thing that's going to be criminalized is, is therapies, practice, counseling that begins from the starting point with the express intent of convincing people that there ought to be a preferred sexuality or gender identity. Basically, any kind of, you know, quote unquote therapy or, or, or session or practice or camp or whatever that goes in telling people from the outset, you should strive to be heterosexual, you should strive to be cisgender. That is what the problem is here. And I think that's a very kind of simple way of addressing this problem. People who are struggling with their orientation or you know, questioning or who are trying to figure out their gender identity, they can absolutely still go to a, a teacher, a priest, mm-hmm. a psychiatrist, and talk through those issues. Just as long as the program does not start from the point of saying, you should be straight, you should be cisgender. Interesting. Okay. Because that was a lot of the conversation is that, you know, if you were a teacher and you spoke with someone, you know, you could get yourself into trouble with the law. On the other side of this issue, Justin, there are growing concerns that children or kids, young adults who are confused about their gender, maybe they're transgender, maybe they're gay, are being sped through medical transitions in this country without enough consultation or therapy. Does this bill um, aggravate that situation? Does it change anything with that? It, it genuinely does. And I, I think what it does is sort of pushes out the bad faith actors who, who do occasionally operate in that space. But, you know, when you actually look at how um, you know, transition works in this country, you'll realize that there's actually many uh, safeguards and stopgaps designed to make sure that people who want to transition are actually uh, positive that they want to do that, to make sure that there's no underlying issues that may otherwise explain that gender dysphoria, you know, they're required to go to, to go to counseling. They're required, um, you know, to, to have, uh, in some cases to wait a considerable amount of time before they actually undergo any kind of permanent medical procedures. Um, you know, there's this myth, um, and it generally is a myth or I know there's always kind of exceptional cases, but there's this myth that it's really common for people to kind of show up at a clinic and say, I'm transgender. And suddenly you're signed up for a surgery 10 days later. That's not how it works. And in fact, you know, what, what people describe, um, as, as worrying about getting criminalized here, people describe this process whereby, you know, you won't be allowed to question people who, who say they want to transition. You'll just have to say yes right away. Well, that's just ludicrous because the actual prescribed process involves a lot of conversations that, that really come down to, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure this is really what you want? Are, do you understand the risks? Do you understand the permanency of this? And that is a yeah. really common thing for people who want to transition. So this bill does not change that. That is how it's going to continue working and that's um, you know how it more or less ought to work and 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 really this bill is about tackling 
only the the really really bad faith actors in this space. And you know, I should say there, there's a there's a real frustrating thing about this conversation because the ones who are most likely to stand up and say, well. What about, you know, what about these conversations? We can't stop, you know, banning the, we can't have these conversations banned. I'm worried about, you know, these cases over here. The people who are most likely to stand up and say that, if you really listen to them, the longer you talk, the more you realize they actually defend the practice of conversion therapy. We heard from members of parliament um, the last time this bill was debated earlier this year, um, who actually stood up and said, you know, I, I don't support conversion therapy, but I think if people want to rid themselves of their homosexual desires or stop their, as one MP said, lesbian activity, they should be allowed to do so. Well, well, that's conversion therapy. You're describing yeah. conversion therapy. So that's exactly what we want to ban. So I, I frankly find a lot of the people who, who raise these sort of hypothetical problems are often not doing so with the, the best interest of these kids or these, or these people in mind. They're doing so out of basically a belief that, that people should be allowed to go seek treatments, in some cases pay for treatments that tell them that being straight is better than being gay and that they ought to do whatever they can to push down those homosexual desires and try to live a more moral straight life. Just before I run out of time, uh, Justin, on a political level, because this did come be very political, I mean, the liberals did use it as a weapon to wedge Aaron O'Toole and Aaron O'Toole you know, wanted to take this off the table. Um, so what he did yesterday was a fairly strategic and smart move. How does this change his, you know, leadership and or the party moving forward, or does it? You know, I think there is, I think there is pressure on Aaron O'Toole to actually come out against this bill. Obviously, there are social conservatives in his party right now who are challenging his leadership, who think he has gone too soft and too far to the center. Um, he resisted that pressure and instead did something really proactive. And Aaron O'Toole has not always been proactive over the last little while. He did something that is both kind of right, that he believes in, and that he took a stand for. And what he did was to kind of take the liberals out at the knees. The liberals have been delaying this bill. The liberals have been allowing this bill to die so that they can, can continue hitting the conservatives over the head on it. The liberals are not altruistic here. They have been letting kids you know, continue to go through this process. They've been failing to protect kids so that they can whack Aaron O'Toole over the head with it. So there is nothing particularly moral or just about what the liberals are doing here. And honestly, I, I applaud Aaron O'Toole for actually standing up um, and, and sort of, you know, hitting back and saying, you want to get this passed? Let's do it now. And I, I really think that that was a really strong sign for his future leadership. Well, an historic day, no, no question about it, with or without the politics. I appreciate you giving some clarity on this issue because it is confusing for many. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. That's Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist who uh, always spends his time covering off a lot of Ottawa stuff and uh, knows this issue extremely well. We know there's renewed interest globally in nuclear technology, and Ontario and our supply chain are gearing up to supply the world and export Ontario's nuclear expertise. Simply put, our opportunity to be a leader in this technology is right here, right now. Todd Smith, Energy Minister with uh, Doug Ford, and they made a big old announcement today that Hitachi will build the first small modular reactors, which uh, is the first new reactor 
to be built in three decades. And this is uh, really falling under the radar with the obsession over this new variant. But it is actually a really big deal because it signals the first big build of expanding into this nuclear capacity in the last three decades. It also comes just a day after uh, this report was tabled, saying that in order for us to even reach the Trudeau government's very lofty 2050 net zero goals, we're going to have to double the amount of clean energy we produce right now. <laughs> like, this means we would have to build 12 nuclear plants and 113 dams for hydroelectricity. I mean, imagine how long that would take and how much that would cost, right? And so now the smaller solution where these small modular reactors, um, you know, this is something Ford announced that he'd roll out, you know, in 2019, he was going to propose them, but they're going to start to roll out in hopefully the next decade, but they will offer up clean and much cheaper energy. Let us bring Dr. Chris Kiefer into the conversation, president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. And uh, good to have you, doctor. You know, I sent you this and I said, mm, is this an announcement kind of just uh, for them to get a headline or is it a, as big a deal um, as it could be? And, and you were pretty excited about this. Yeah. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me back. Um, this is this is a really huge announcement. It's been um, a long time coming. Um, in terms of uh, OPG and the government of Ontario deciding on which reactor will get built at Darlington. You know, we've been talking about building new reactors at Darlington since about 2012, um, and things got put on hold because we thought we didn't need um, a lot more electricity. Um, as you mentioned, that Clean Energy Canada report that, that just came out, indeed, it does call for doubling Canada's national grid capacity with clean sources. And uh, I just wanted to correct you on something there. You're right, it did say we need 12 uh, new power plants. But what they were referring to is 12 new Bruce power plants. Bruce Power is the largest okay. operating nuclear station in the world. It has eight <laughs> reactors there, eight large canned reactors. That's, that's so what, the big, reports, right? yeah. what the report's <laughs> really saying is we would need 96 new large canned reactors or 112 site C dams. And, and you know how... Um, controversial uh, new hydroelectric projects are. Site C has, has caused a real political firestorm in BC as well as we have Muskrat Falls in Newfoundland. Yeah. So the, the scale of commitment, if we are to try and achieve what, um, what we're promising, um, requires a really different kind of politics than, than what we're used to uh, seeing. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, the Minister of Environment, uh, Mr. Gibol, uh, is in town today. He took the train in, apparently. Uh, you can come on the show, sir, if you'd like. Uh, he didn't give me a call for some strange reason. But nonetheless, this is something that he is against. This is something as an activist he campaigned against. He does not like nuclear energy. He is all about renewables. But this is a different approach for the Ford government, which um, about a year ago, two years ago, uh, came out uh, you know, with agreements with, uh, I think, the Saskatchewan Premier, that they were going to you know, invest in these small nuclear module units uh, am i right to say like they would go into communities how would these things work yeah i mean so this is a 300 megawatt reactor for context um you know pickering has six 550 megawatt reactors and bruce has these 880 megawatt reactors so 300 is pretty small but it's still a it's still a large reactor that's going to power hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of homes um, you know, the I mean, rule if you're could a be, reserve up north and you've got power issues and all the rest of it, that is a, a game changer. Yeah, I mean, this would be much too large for a reserve. Um, this is okay. something that fits well, say, in a smaller province, maybe Nova Scotia. Um, and mm -hmm. Saskatchewan is also interested in this technology. Now, that's, again, based upon their current electricity needs. If we're going to double our electricity needs, my opinion is that this reactor is too small for much of Canada. Currently, yes, mm -hmm. it's a good fit. But again, if we're if we're going to embark on this massive uh, 2xing of our electricity grid to electrify everything, nuclear is the way to go on that. Absolutely, because 
if we're going to electrify everything, it means we don't have a backup. Um, so that electricity needs to be ultra reliable, not not wind and solar, which uh, craps the bed when when it, when the sun goes down or the wind doesn't blow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is an interesting announcement, and it is, it's it's interesting as well because it's um, it's based on an American technology. Um, we seem to be abandoning um, a real gem of Canadian engineering, the the Canda reactor, and to me, it's a little bit unclear why. Well, I mean, I think most people just uh, go off the propaganda of what they've heard from climate, um, you know, alarmists and, and the activists who you know, are, are staunchly opposed to nuclear. But it does seem um, that there is a renewed conversation about a technology that is available, that is clean, and it's much more affordable. And given the report we saw yesterday, it is very clear, doctor, that we are not anywhere close to getting to these goals that the Trudeau government has proposed. So I don't know if they have an option other than to look at this, or maybe they do, but they just won't. Well, I mean, Alex, as you know, talk, especially political talk, is is very cheap. Election cycles are every four years. Um, making these kind of investments, they're historic generational investments. And Listen, I'm, I'm someone who is alarmed, alarmed by climate. I look at the heat dome in B.C. last year. I mean, poor B.C. is just getting slammed over and over again. But, yeah the massive flooding that we see. And we, we clearly need to do something about climate. But what's attractive about nuclear energy is we can do that in a way that doesn't sacrifice our quality of living and doesn't sacrifice our economic prosperity. And, and my argument really is that we should be using CANDU a lot more. There's a role for SMR for sure, but we shouldn't put the cart in front of the horse. CANDU really is, um, you know, the the powerhouse that can, that can channel Canadian prosperity while dealing with our climate issues. We have a 96% made in Canada supply chain with Canada, we have a lot of experience with it. We're involved in Canada's largest infrastructure project right now, refurbishing um, the reactors at Darlington and Bruce, giving them another 40 years of life. We're intimately familiar with this technology. And I think you know the lowest risk thing in terms of uh, doing expensive energy projects is something that we know how to do that's our own technology. Um, and that, that's why I'm a, a real passionate advocate for Candu. And again, I mean, if we need if we need 96 large Candu reactors worth of electricity, you know, to accomplish these lofty goals, um, you can triple that in terms of the number of SMRs that we'd need. So SMRs are an important part of the strategy, but I, I don't think they should be central to Canada's decarbonization efforts. We need Candu. Okay, just quickly before I let you go, I've got about 30 seconds. Um, you know, how many are they looking to build of these things? So they're building one at Darlington, um, and it's sort of a trial. And if it goes well on budget okay. on time, then Saskatchewan is looking like they'll okay. probably build six or seven more of those to help them get off coal, because coal is illegal as of 2030 yeah. in Canada. Right. Well, it's not a small project. It's going to take about a decade, but it's one of those things I hope they get shovels in the ground, move forward. Let's just get this thing started and stop talking about it. Uh, very much appreciate your time on this, uh, Dr. Chris Kiefer. You're very uh, much uh, appreciate the insight into it. It's a pleasure being on again, Alex. Take care. That is uh, Chris Kiefer, who's the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. It is becoming a bigger part of the conversation, and I think it should. I don't think we should just rely on one thing. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson here on Point. This is Global News Radio.